Hi, it's Mark Bittman, and welcome to Food. You can always reach us at food at markbittman.com, and we'd love to hear from you with questions, answers, suggestions, comments, whatever. Please subscribe to this podcast. Subscribe to The Bittman Project. That's bitmanproject.com. And uh, leave us reviews and comments on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're all drinking more water these days and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. Less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U dot com and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bitman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.
I adore cooking, obviously, and I like cookbooks and recipes. But as you know, I've become convinced that looking at the bigger picture in food is what's most important. And I've come to admire my fellow food writers who look at that picture from, let's say, less traditional angles. One of my favorites among what might be called the new generation of food writers, or at least of the generation after mine, is B. Wilson, a British writer whom I encounter most frequently in The Guardian and the London Review of Books. Um, I liked her enough to look her up and have a conversation, and in this conversation with B, we talk about her evolution from a food writer who looked at unusual but smaller subjects like bees, including bees as a metaphor, and the history of fake ingredients, or worse, poisonous ones, to one who considered the history of technology in food, reminding us that the simplest utensils, the book was called Consider the Fork, are products of technology just as much as the food processor is. B. Wilson's work took a more global turn a few years ago when she wrote First Bite, subtitled How We Learn to Eat. And from there, she moved to The Way We Eat Now a book that closely parallels my own somewhat later Animal Vegetable Junk, and which made me start to think of B. Wilson as a kind of kindred spirit. Indeed, in the last few years, we've written a lot of the same things, the ever-growing threat presented by ultra-processed or junk foods, why fake meat is problematic, our alienation from food, the future of the so-called food system, and so on. So we talk about all of that and about food in general and how food writing has evolved and the importance of taking food writing seriously. You'll hear more a conversation between two people who agree about a lot and have a lot in common and less of an interview here. And I hope you find that enjoyable. Here we go. When I first became aware of you, I was struck by how we were sort of following the same path, um, had followed the same path. You're your first books were about the kitchen and about eating and they weren't, obviously they weren't cookbooks. One was about the technology of the kitchen, consider the fork. And one was about how we learn how to eat. Um, and then you did this book about, you did swindles, which was a history of sort of food companies cheating. And then you did the way we eat now. I mean, you are still writing as a generalist, which is cool, but your food journalism is more and more ultra-processed food, junk food, what the hell is going on with our diet, et cetera, et cetera. Could you just talk a little bit about your evolution? Well, in a way, I mean, yeah, I'm hugely honored you think we have similar careers because, yeah, I don't want to go into just sycophancy here, but I'm such a big fan of your work. I feel that, I don't know if you feel the same, writing about food is the biggest privilege the biggest thrill in the world because food is everything yeah food connects to everything and it so often just gets put in a box and quite early on in my career I try and explain what I did and I say I'm mostly a food writer and people go oh right okay you review restaurants yeah yeah well they go recipe okay recipes or restaurants and recipes are great and well restaurant reviewing is great I really admire people that can do that I tried it for about three or four weeks to cover someone's maternity leave. And it just killed the joy of eating out for me. Mm. I found it really, really difficult. So that's an aspect of food writing I've almost never done. You know what's fun is having friends who are restaurant reviewers. That's that really fun. <laughs> I need to cultivate more friends who are restaurant reviewers. It would be lovely, yeah, just to come along for the ride and offer the occasional thought of, yes, this fish is a tiny bit overcooked and get the free meal. Perfect. Yeah, no, that's a plan. I haven't really thought of that. But no, I haven't done that. But I've done lots of other things. And even now, I mean, you said I've moved more in a direction where I'm doing these big investigative pieces for The Guardian and other newspapers about things like ultra-processed food or bacon and the extent to which it's... I mean, that, that piece it gave me really mixed emotions because I would say I am first and foremost a home cook. I love to cook. I cook every day. But that aspect of my food life hasn't always made it into my food writing. I've actually just been writing my first cookbook. So in a way, I think that your career and my career have gone in opposite because it, we it took a surprisingly, yeah. yeah, your fantastic book, Animal Vegetable Junk, that came after you having written 
I mean, obviously you'd written investigative pieces for newspapers for years, hadn't you? But you had done so many cookbooks by then. Whereas I've discovered I've done the investigative stuff and then to do a cookbook, my word, it's difficult, but it's so much fun. I've just loved it. But I think the two always go together, don't they? The politics and the pleasure. I mean, not for everybody, but for many of us, yeah. I mean, but for me, I've told this story a lot, so I'll keep it short. But the years that I was really only writing about cooking and I couldn't figure out how to write about other aspects of food. And really, in fairness, I wasn't thinking that much about writing about other aspects of food. I felt a little guilty because I started out as a political person and I was going to save the world and all of that. And then I found myself writing recipes and I thought, well, is this doing anybody any good? And then after a while, I thought, actually, it is. I'm advocating for eating rice and beans. I'm doing these things that actually are helpful and useful. And then mostly really when um, Fast Food Nation came out, when Eric Schlotzer wrote Fast Food Nation, was really a revelation because I was like, wow, he's writing about all these things that I've thought about but can't, couldn't figure out. It was a marketing problem on my part. I couldn't figure out how to sell the stuff that I thought was really interesting. People would say, oh, no one wants to read about that. Or editors would say, people think food should be fun. They want to read about restaurants and great recipes and great ingredients. They don't want to read about the depressing chicken industry in the United States. And then things started to shift, and I was able to become a little more forceful. Yeah, that book really changed the landscape of food writing, didn't it? I think in both countries, UK and US, suddenly people weren't putting food as much in a box. And now I was recently having a conversation with um, John Lanchester, who's a really great British writer. He's mostly a novelist, but he was... He's a friend of mine, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah, he's yeah, so yeah. great. And he's an amazing cook as well. But we were doing an event together and he was saying when people first wrote him letters about his restaurant column, I don't know what they were asking about ingredients or price or whatever, or asking for recommendations of a good place to eat in a certain British town. And then over a course of a few years, it was just all about the politics. It was all about the ethics. It was all, should I eat meat? If so, what kind? And these bigger global questions about food, I think everyone's asking them now. I mean, I think our subject, which sort of seemed quite, it never was niche, but some people mistook it for a niche subject. It still drives me crazy that in some newspapers, many newspapers, food is listed under the lifestyle section. Yeah, And I think food is not lifestyle, it's life. But the general public has really started to cotton onto that. I think these big debates about what is food, what is it for, how should it be produced, how can we produce it in a more equitable way, and how can we redress some of these huge inequalities in the ways people eat? People are having those conversations. I mean, that's my impression as a kind of general part of life. It is what's happening. There is still, there's one more shift, I think, that needs, well. Oh, many, several many, more shifts. Yeah, yeah. But We're not one, there. One, one fundamental <laughs> shift is that every, people do ask those questions. And this is where I was at when I wrote VB6. People do ask those questions of, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do it? But the real question is, how does society handle the food supply? How do we as a society prioritize what we're growing, what we're producing, what we're processing, what we're selling, what we're encouraging people to eat? Because if everybody tomorrow decided to eat right, quote unquote, there's not enough right food to do that. No, the supply couldn't cope, could they? I mean, there have been studies done, a guy called Tim Lang here in the UK. Yeah, yeah you must know Tim as well. You know everyone. I do. Yeah. Um, I mean... I'm sort of a, a long-term Anglophile, so I have sought out British food writers over the years. Yeah. But yeah, I know well, Tim's Tim, great. Tim is he's amazing. He's sort of the yeah. leading voice on food policy. Yeah, he's here. like the But he's the done work showing that if people ate the five fruits and vegetables a day that our government is advising we should do, it, supply couldn't possibly keep up. And actually the area given over to horticulture as opposed to other kinds of farming has shrunk during the years that that has been the official advice. So there's just this kind of crazy mismatch of what we feel we should do and what's actually possible. And I think one of the biggest problems is 
People in general, I think, in the population are seeing that food's more important, but politicians do not get it. To a huge extent, food is just not a priority. It's the same here. Yeah, it's the same here. I mean, one thing when people ask me what they should do, I say you should, when you're voting for people for office, you should ask them what they think about food and see if they have an answer. Yeah, but then you may be just stuck between <laughs> two people that don't <laughs> care about food. Um, <laughs> But some them. will start to see it as an advantage, yeah. I think. My thing is, I, I did a piece a few months ago for The Guardian about food policy in the UK, which sounds like a very dry subject. But the thing that often excites me about the piece is just discovering someone else's interesting research and attempting to write about it in a more generalist way. There were these researchers who'd found that there had been something like more than 700 separate obesity strategies in the UK. If you define a strategy as being, it could be a sentence or a statement. I think they were within 14 overarching strategies since the 1990s. And almost none of them have been actioned. Almost none of them were designed in a way they ever could be actioned. They're just being put forward by politicians who want to be seen to do something about food, but maybe don't even really care that much even to that extent. Um, I just think there's a huge, huge disengagement of politicians just not getting it, not getting that there's any connection between food and health, never mind food and ecology or food and climate. Right. I'll say two things about that. One is that, yeah, people, I encourage people to think about what food's for, which leads you immediately to think it what about why it's so important and that we should be stressing it more. But the other thing is that I was talking to this guy last night who's a political strategist. He's like, well, no one's going to say they're pro-hunger. If you start talking about, I mean, hunger relief is sort of the, what is it, baseline? Or it's sort of the lowest common denominator. Yeah, it's the lowest common denominator of talking about food. How can we make sure that everybody is at least fed? Before we even say, fed what? Just has enough calories to live. So no one disagrees that that, but then there's like a majority of politicians who will say, oh yes, of course I'm anti-hunger. I really will vote for any anti-hunger bill, blah, blah, blah. And then they don't, or they find an excuse not to. And, and it continues that there are people, even in the States, ostensibly the world's richest country, there are still people going hungry, which is an incredible thing, really. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah, you're right. To say that you're anti-hunger is a very non-controversial statement, even if they don't follow up on it. But our conception of hunger so clearly needs to be broadened out. And our conception of malnutrition has to take on board the fact that so much of what's sold for as food is not really food, wouldn't you say? I would say. I saw your, um, I think it was a TLS piece that was headlined, but is it food? And, and I <laughs> love that because um, I have this line, which I always think, I use in talks all the time and I always think it's an amazing line and but it's not because you know an amazing line draws a response and this never draws a response but if you look at the dictionary and you look up the dictionary definition of food and then you look up the dictionary definition of poison ultra processed food is closer to the dictionary definition of poison than it is the dictionary definition of food so the question of is it food is really Apt. It's not a joke. No, it's not We're a producing joke. 60% of our calories that we produce are ultra-processed food, and ultra-processed food is literally bad for you. It's actually really bad for you, <laughs> and yet it's been so normalized and accepted into our lives and entwined with all of these really important thoughts and emotions about love and family and home. I think that's, I mean, that's in a way, that's the Eric Schlosser territory of the sort of emotional resonance of fast food, but it's much bigger than just what people would consider fast food. I mean, as, yeah, as you've just said, ultra-processed food is 60% of what's in the supermarket. And it includes yeah. so many foods that people have just accepted as being fine, even healthy. Well, normalized for sure. Mm. And actually, maybe after movies, it's the United States' most important. Well, actually, it is more important than movies, obviously. But it's our greatest cultural export, junk food. Yes. Amazing. It's being exported Incredible. everywhere. There's hardly a patch of the world that doesn't have it now. And yeah, as you've written about, as I've written about, it's now 
just as the UK and US and Canada and Western Europe are kind of slowly, slowly waking up to it, there were then these huge emerging markets in India, Brazil, Mexico, where they're pushing it harder and in worse forms than ever before. I do think it's the, one of the great battles of our time. And yet, when I, I think slowly the phrase ultra-processed food is gaining traction. Do you think people in the States have that phrase now or not really? Not really. I use it. Name the problem. I use it, but I use it synonymously with junk food. There's nothing wrong with calling it junk food, I don't think. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, for years there were lots of people, and I now realize most of them were just lobbyists for the ultra processed food industry who would say, but we mustn't demonize food, so we mustn't call it junk food. Mm. And it's it's one of those many clever arguments that the lobbyists use. I've just one of the things I've just been writing was a big piece on palm oil. And one of the books I was reviewing pointed out that anytime anyone queried the palm oil industry, they would get accused of being, what was it, eco-imperialists. So, I mean, the lobbyists have these great phrases, don't they, for knocking down arguments that are made in favour of real food, home food. And so, yeah, there's a sort of sense that if you say junk food, you are being just elitist and you're making people feel bad about their food choices. Whereas I think if you look at where the blame lies, it's completely fine to demonize the manufacturers of ultra-processed food. I'm very happy to do that. They are, as you've said, they're poisoning people on an unprecedented scale. They're poisoning children. They're poisoning poor people. They're poisoning people that can't afford to buy anything else. And they're doing it while selling people dreams at the same time. I mean, it's, it really, yeah, I think evil probably isn't too strong a word. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, folks. A word from our friends at Made In. Did you know that most of the dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in, made in pots and pans? The braised short ribs, made in, made in. The Rohan duck, made in, made in. The heritage pork chop, you got it, made in, made in. Which isn't surprising. Made in has been supplying top chefs and restaurants with high-end cookware for years. For the simple reason that made in makes exactly what demanding chefs are looking for. Their carbon steel cookware, for example, combines the best of cast iron and stainless steel, gets super hot, and is rugged enough for grills or an open flame. Best of all, Made In is sold online, so their professional-grade cookware is far more affordable than other iron brands. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, remember what so many great dishes on menus all around the world have in common. They're Made In, Made In. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MadeInCookware.com. That's MadeInCookware.com. Thanks. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include 
dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats. You know you want that. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, folks. We have a new sponsor and an interesting one. We all take about 20,000 breaths a day, and Americans spend about 90% of our time indoors. That indoor air that we breathe can be up to 100 times more polluted than outdoor air, according to the EPA. And indoor air pollutants can cause respiratory symptoms like sneezing, congestion, scratchy throat, and even more serious health problems like lung and heart disease. So, what's the solution? Introducing Air Doctor, the air purifier that filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so your lungs don't have to. This includes allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code BITMAN, B-I-T-T-M-A-N, and you'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to our listeners, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. Lock in this special offer by going to airdoctorpro.com. That's A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use the promo code BITMAN. We're all drinking more water these days and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no insulation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Is there something to point to that that is an example of people doing things better or of the realization? I used to think everybody's going to look at America. They're going to see how bad our, our public health is as a result of this junk food diet, and they're going to pull up short. They're going to they're gonna say, whoa, let's not let our people go there. Let's make it so that people have good food available to them on a more regular basis. But you don't see it. You haven't seen it. You haven't seen Argentina say, okay, let's put on the brakes here, or European countries, or so-called emerging nations. Everybody's just buying into the junk food thing, in part because that's what there is, and in part because it's exported, in part because it's cheap, in part because there is this perverse notion that people around the world want to be like Americans, or at least some do. 
But I'm just wondering if you see things differently, if you have a different perspective, if you have anything hopeful to offer in that. This is one of the questions I most think about and ask myself and have tried to research because about, I don't know, 10 years ago or more, I think there was a point when I naively thought, okay, why are we in the UK so susceptible to this junk? You know, in Europe, we are just very, very, very high up in terms of consuming American-style junk food. And I thought, well, it's because we had such an early industrial revolution in Britain. We lost our sense of any cuisine a long time ago. Contrast to countries like Argentina, which you've mentioned, or I mean, let alone France, Spain, Italy. I thought those countries that have a really strong cuisine, surely they won't be susceptible. And now I look, look at the data and I look at, well, China, Chinese cuisine, is there any greater or more embedded cuisine in the world? And yet the stats on junk food consumption in China and how rapidly it's taken off and how successful it's been. And I've had conversations with Italian friends about how on earth did things like Fanta and Coca-Cola end up on our tables um, Mm. in our children's mouths when we are the ones that sort of grew up knowing about our mothers teaching us about olive oil and garlic and bitter greens and pasta and all of these wonderful things. And I think part of the answer, like the depressing answer, is that marketing is unbelievably successful. These multinational food corporations have the biggest marketing budgets in the world and a reach bigger than Genghis Khan. I mean, they really are the new (laughs) evil empire. But I... I've kind of just kept trying to look for glimmers of hope and glimmers of hope because I think you have to wake up and think tomorrow's another breakfast. We're still going to eat and there are still people planting gardens and doing great things. One of the glimmers of hope I found in my research was South Korea in that South Korea went through incredibly rapid economic development post-war, just as many other countries in Asia did. But somehow the economic development in South Korea didn't correlate with a reduction in vegetable consumption. And I found that really remarkable. And this is a huge oversimplification. But there were two reasons that I could find. One was kimchi, that just (laughs) that kimchi, aka fermented cabbage, is such an embedded comfort food in South Korea that they were never going to stop eating it even though they did start eating higher volume of ultra-processed food. But the other thing is that the government there was really proactive in terms of protecting the cuisine and putting commercials on TV saying, support your local farmer, buy local, supporting vegetables. There were workshops which the government invested in so that people Mm. continue to know how to make Mm. traditional Korean cuisine. And I'm not saying... South Korea is perfect. I don't think we should be aiming at perfect. This is why I love the VB6 approach. I think pragmatism about food, you know, it's not like I never eat ultra processed food myself. The last thing we want is to get into some kind of clean eating mentality or some kind of purity cult around food. That never leads to good places. That leads to eating disorders. But what South Korea managed was somehow to tip the balance such that it went through economic development The big ultra-processed food manufacturers came in and yet they were still eating actually slightly more vegetables based on the last statistics I saw as they went through the 90s and into the 2000s. And that to me is a model that if you have politicians that care, that get it, that ask your question, what is food for, then almost anything is possible. And I also, I take hope from other cuisines and other cultures. I think Finland's amazing. They have universal free school meals. And the Finnish case is kind of especially hopeful for places like UK and US in that they had really, really bad health outcomes and really unhealthy diets. And slowly, slowly through lots and lots of interventions, they're attempting to change that. And I think those are the places we kind of, I mean, in a sense, you could look at South Korea and think, well, we didn't all grow kimchi. So what hope is there for us? On the other hand, I do find it amazing how many British people, it must be the same in the States, love kimchi now. And that is something that people would have had kind of, I think prejudice isn't too strong a word. People would have wrinkled up their nose 
at the thought of kimchi a few years ago. So I think the the pattern on changing diets, it's by no means all pessimistic. People have widened the variety of what they eat in loads of ways. You reviewed Jocelyn Zuckerman's book, which I read, and um, another book I can't Jonathan remember. Jonathan Robbins, palm. Oil Palm, A Global yeah. History, I think it was called. So can you just, um, this is really just a curiosity thing. Can you talk about palm oil and the controversy around it? I can. Yeah, I was aware palm oil was a problem. But until I read those two books, I had no idea of the extent of it. And both the books in different ways make this great point, which is in a way, palm oil is an emblem of the many, many problems and inequities of the modern food system and the extent to which it goes back to the first industrial revolution. So palm oil, as you know, in Africa, where it's still an absolutely beloved food, natural, artisanal, unprocessed palm oil is delicious. It's pungent, it's red. An early European traveller who tasted some of it in Africa, in Senegal, I think, said it's got the colour of saffron, it's got the taste of Mm. olive oil, and it's got the scent of violets. I mean, who wouldn't want to eat that? Yeah, it sounds great. It sounds great, and it is great. I mean, I've only had the kind that I can buy here in Caribbean and African food stores. It's quite hard to track down. So that's one of the weird paradoxes. So palm oil is in practically everything. It's in more than 50%, again, as with ultra-processed food. It, It is in most ultra-processed foods. But even if you avoid ultra-processed food, it's there in your toothpaste, it's there in your shampoo, it's in your soap. And why is it such a problem? It's such a problem in the same ways that ultra-processed food in general is such a problem. It is destroying ecosystems on a such a wildly vast scale, it's hard even to compute millions of hectares of virgin rainforests that have been destroyed in Indonesia and Malaysia to grow palm oil plantations, causing loss of biodiversity, loss of habitat for orangutan and many other animals, but also terrible human suffering. I thought the Zuckerman book really brought home the extent to which these local communities, they weren't living a rich life before. They were maybe fishing a bit, they were hunting a bit, they had access to ripe fresh fruits in the summer. But once the palm oil people come in, they raise it to the ground. There's nothing left. The water that remains, which is kind of a small dribble compared to the water they had before, is so polluted from the runoff from palm oil plantations. Mm. They can't fish. So then there's nothing left for those people to eat, but the ultra-processed food full of industrialized palm oil. But the bit I failed to mention is like it could only become this product by taking this rich, red, beautiful, saffrony substance and turning it into more or less food as cipher. So they originally, the, the thing from the second book that I found fascinating, which looked a lot into the Victorian history of it, they actually figured out the technology as a way to make candles. It wasn't designed to be a food. They wanted to make candles that um, the cheapest way of making candles in Victorian England was beef tallow, um, right. which had understandable downsides because it kind of smelt bad, smelt kind of meaty. You don't want a candle that smells meaty. And then somebody figured out that if you could take palm oil and you could refine it, bleach it and deodorize it. So that's the palm oil we have now is called yeah, RBD, refined bleach deodorized. You could remove that wonderful smell. You could bleach it of that wonderful rich red color but what you could then have was this fatty substance that you could put into anything from soap to margarine and that's that's what we're living with now it's really hard and reading those books i think how do we unpick this because you can't just if you just take the palm oil out well what else comes in soybean oil is also not great it's just denaturized or whatever the word is fat right and just Oil with none of its original characteristics. Exactly. It's in a blank canvas. Except for the, yeah. For the, yeah. I mean, the stuff that Schlosser writes about so well in Fast Food Nation about that strawberry milkshake and the extent to which something that's supposedly strawberry flavored has actually got 20 or 30 different flavor compounds in it. I mean, the food industry loves a blank canvas. It's just like pure texture. And then they can conjure with it whatever dreams and flavors they want. 
slaps and great marketing on it. The box probably costs more than the palm oil inside. All right, let's move away from depressing topics and talk about cooking. And I'll just say, I mentioned that I was in Anglophile. First time I was in England, it was still a little post-war. It was 68. I mean, it had that, it had a feel like that. And the food was really terrible. And then I, I traveled in England through the 70s, and the food remained. And then something happened. I don't know if it was that I just found my way more into the country itself, or people my age were going back to the land, and suddenly there were people. I mean, I remember dairy being the first thing that sort of recovered. Suddenly there were great cheeses and yogurts and other dairy products everywhere. And then I was visiting farms down in Dorset and Somerset and Cornwall, and and you were finding all these fabulous vegetables. And then the fish industry started to, I don't want to say come back, I want to say become more apparent to me, because, like I started seeing it. And then suddenly, not suddenly, but by the 90s, I was thinking of England as this sort of paradise of great ingredients ingredients. So I always think, oh, if we have good ingredients here now also, obviously, but I did always think cooking there was fun and sort of a joy that you could find a lot of really honest, beautiful ingredients. Mm, it's true. I mean, you're, you're also completely right about how bad food was for a long time. I think we had a kind of long period of post-war food, kind of post-rationing mentality where you'd like go to a restaurant and they'd just serve you like packet soup. You wouldn't even expect to have real soup. That was a luxury. Yeah, I remember that. As too. you say, dramatically and the cheese, there were all these great people like the people who set up Meals Yard Dairy who who campaigned. Right. There were various battles that went on and battles to replant British cherry orchards which had died out and battles to revive ways of making Stilton with unpasteurized milk, but they couldn't call it Stilton anymore. So it's called Stitchelton. Yeah, I think you're right. I think if you're lucky enough to have money to buy ingredients, I think Britain is a wonderful place to eat and cook. And so many people I've spoken to, I'll ask them what their favorite city in the world is to eat. And people like Claudia Roden, who've been here since the 1950s, and she's so polite and gracious, and I'm sure at the time would never have said, this is terrible food, but she now will quite frankly say the food when she arrived was awful. And now she thinks London is the best. She thinks you could just yeah. go out every night if you had the money and just eat a wonderful meal from every different cuisine in the world. I think in a way that in Britain, we sort of lost a sense of our own cuisine, but then we're also very open to other flavors. But so you, yeah, there, there are some great things to eat here. But then you think about it must have been just fine in the 40s and 50s because Elizabeth David and Jane Grigson, they were obviously getting their hands on fine ingredients because they were writing these brilliant cookbooks, right? Not in the 40s. I mean, Elizabeth David in the 50s was really writing, I think, in the shadow of a Britain that was only just bouncing back from austerity. And there's some line where she says, just even to say words like apricot or olive oil seems like a kind of balm to the soul because it was so rare and difficult to find those things. And those were things that she'd gone to the Mediterranean experience and then come back to this drab Britain where people were still eating dried egg and fake coffee and all sorts mm. of things. And you couldn't really get a good loaf of bread. And she was partly responsible for changing it. But I, I also think there's this conversation that's going on that is so long overdue in terms of like who should get credit for changing cuisine. And there's a conversation in the States, isn't there? Mayuk Sen wrote that really good book, Tastemakers on Immigrant Women Who Transformed mm -hmm. American Food. And I think in Britain, we've given a huge amount of credit to Elizabeth David. She was absolutely great, but I think we haven't given enough credit to people like Ken Hom, Mada Jaffrey, Claudia Roden. I mean, to talk to Claudia Roden now, who's the great goddess of Middle Eastern cuisine, it's amazing to think that when she first came to Britain, nobody had heard of hummus. 
she had to describe it in her early books as there's this kind of creamy chickpea salad with tahini but then she had to explain what tahini was and I think she called it tahina then and she says now that when she goes to British supermarkets and she sees hummus everywhere that her father from Egypt would have just been so stunned to see their food there as a beloved British comfort food and I find all of that very moving yeah that's great I love her she's terrific and um yeah, she really did do a lot to change. That was one of my first one of my first cookbooks was Claudia Roden's Middle Eastern cookbook. She's one of my all-time heroes. Let's just touch on cooking because um we haven't gotten to it. We'll have to talk again, I guess. But we do ask everyone who's on the podcast what they had for dinner last night. So this will give you an opportunity to talk about cooking a little bit. Great. Well, I made a very lazy thing that I'm we're in the middle of a kind of heat wave in Britain. Oh yeah, we've heard. And I'm one of those weird people. I don't know about you. A lot of people say, oh, it's so hot. I'm too hot to eat. I never go like that. I have a kind of raging <laughs> hunger when it's hot. So I feel incredibly hungry, but at the same time, I feel a bit too lazy to cook anything elaborate. And the thing I've been making on repeat, it's like a version of that Italian thing where you take pasta, but you have it with cold chopped up tomatoes mm. and basil. But instead of that, I take Taiwanese noodles, still the tomatoes, but instead of the olive oil, I have quite a lot of sesame oil, soy sauce. Um, sometimes I saute some, I call them spring onions. Do you call them scallions? Or do you still, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, um, it works either way. <laughs> it works. And then I still add lots of basil at the end. And then last night we had it with something that my youngest son calls meaty tofu because he's kind of a carnivore, but I'm slowly, slowly trying to get him to enjoy tofu. And I kind of developed this tofu that was originally to go in a tofu banh mi sandwich, where I just, again, actually had loads of soy sauce and something sweet like honey or maple syrup and ginger and garlic, and then quite big, meaty pieces of that. Yeah, so we had the coldish noodles with the cold tomatoes and basil, spring onions, and meaty tofu on the side, and it was good. It's pretty great. Thank you, B. It's been great meeting you and chatting with you. And um, I hope you come back sometime. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. In honor of B, who's been eating a lot of pasta with raw, fresh tomatoes lately, we'll do my linguine with raw tomato sauce, a Sicilian or at least Southern Italian classic that uh, is perfect for late summer. You will need salt, water for that matter, two cups of chopped fresh tomatoes, that's a more or less, two tablespoons olive oil, or more, I would say, two cloves of garlic, lightly smashed. Don't smash them too aggressively, you'll find out why. And at least a half a cup of chopped fresh basil, pepper, a pound of linguine or other long pasta, and you can use Parmesan in here or not if you like. So as usual, bring a large pot of water to the boil and salt it. In a large bowl, combine the tomatoes, oil, garlic, half the basil, um, and some salt and pepper. Mash that using a fork or a potato masher or whatever you want, but don't puree it. And again, don't be too aggressive about mashing that garlic because you're going to want to fish it out. You can make the sauce an hour or two before you're ready, ready to cook the pasta and let it rest at room temperature. This makes it a pretty easy recipe, really. When the water boils, add the pasta, cook it as usual, start tasting it after five minutes or so and remove it when it's tender but not mushy. Reserve a little bit of the cooking water if the sauce seems dense. Uh, you can thin it out a little bit later, but drain the pasta Fish the garlic out of the sauce. You do not want to be eating whole raw cloves of garlic, unless you do. Then toss the pasta with the sauce, top with the remaining basil, thin with some of that reserved water if it needs that, and if you like, pass grated Parmesan at the table. That's it. Thanks to the warm and wonderful B. Wilson for joining me today. You can follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Kitchen B B E E. Thanks for joining us. Remember, you can reach us at food at markbitman.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and please also consider subscribing to our near daily newsletter 
The Bitman Project. That's bitmanproject.com. You can also find me at markbitman.com or follow me on Twitter at Bitman. Thanks as usual to Kate Bitman, our producer, Davis Lloyd, our engineer, and thanks to Moby for our theme music. See you next week when we will have someone awesome. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.